So welcome everyone to another in our series of conversations between Caleb Morpin and Hapal Bra. And today we're going to be talking about Pakistan. So uh, I'm sure everybody will have heard something about the turmoil that's been happening in Pakistan um, really for the last year, almost nonstop. Um, we're going to start today's conversation by asking Hapal a little bit about Imran Khan, because, you know, a year ago, Imran Khan was a... a Prime Minister, President of Pakistan, sorry, Prime, I Prime Minister, Prime Minister. Um, and then he was deposed very much at the behest of the USA uh, because he seemed to be making the wrong types of noises as regards to friendship with China and Russia. Um, but that hasn't seemed to have been enough, does it? There, so Imran Khan was deposed, but it seems like there's a concerted effort to make sure that Imran Khan can never be re-elected. And Hapal, do you think you could talk to us a little bit about what's been going on there? Well, it's the old story. In Pakistan, at governmental level, nothing runs unless the military sanctions it. Whether the military is actually nominally in power or it's retired from office, it actually is the deciding factor. It's the Pakistani military that decides how Pakistan's foreign policy and how its internal policy is shaped. And the real prime minister of Pakistan in actual terms is the chief of the army staff. So if you want to know what Pakistan's position is, you listen to very carefully the statements made by the, the general who happens to be the chief chief of the army staff. And every now and then, when that doesn't do, they make a coup d'etat. Imran Khan himself came to power because of the help of the army. So it's not that he's not been connected with the army. The army brought him to office in 2018, basically by having all kinds of cases against the very people that it has now replaced him with, uh, like Shabazz Sharif, who is now the, well, he's not now, there's some bureaucrat who is uh, the prime minister nomi nominally, because there are going to be elections. And it was Shabazz Sharif's elder brother who was got rid of, and there were lots of corruption charges against him. He was jailed. He couldn't stand for any office for a number of years. And he then got permission to leave Pakistan um, on grounds of bad health. And he spent several years living in his posh flat in, in, uh, on the corner of Hyde Park Corner. And uh, then as soon as Imran Khan was overthrown and uh, Nawaz Sharif's brother became prime minister, his health suddenly improved and he went back back, back to Pakistan, Pakistan. I don't know whether he's in London or Pakistan now, but that's what happens. So Imran Khan himself was brought into power by, by the army. How come there's been a turn of events that Pakistani army cannot stand him anymore? There are basically, the Pakistani army is in concert with the United States and Imran Khan criticized American drone strikes and drone strikes uh, in, in 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 Pakistan. They were killing people uh, and with targeted killing killing 
lot of that does was done over the over the years. He also welcomed the Taliban victory in Afghanistan. Now, a Taliban victory in Afghanistan was not just a victory for Afghanistan. It was a most humiliating defeat by the United States, which had waged war against Afghanistan for 20 years. And then, of course, he refused to condemn Russia's special military op operation. And when European and diplomatic representatives in Islamabad issued a statement asking Pakistan to condemn it, and Imran Khan famously said, are we your slaves? Well, the answer is yes. And so, and, and then on top of that, on the same day that the military operation started, Imran Khan happened to be at the Kremlin, shaking hands with Vladimir Putin. Now, if that's not a red rag, will you tell me what it is? And of course, Pakistan indicated it will be buying energy from Russia. All that mix annoyed the United States. And it's the United States really that instigated that Imran Khan must be removed. And it was as a result of that, that I believe it was the 18th of April of last year, that the Pakistan National Assembly, by a majority of just two, passed a no-confidence motion against Imran Khan, and, and he was removed. It led, of course, to Imran Khan tweeting, the freedom struggle starts today against foreign conspiracy and, and, and foreign-inspired government change. And there were huge demonstrations which carried on for months. At one stage, he was shot, and luckily he was shot in the leg. So he, he wasn't, wasn't killed. But it's, it was a clear attempt at assassination because he has become, as a result of the positions he has taken on the United States and on Pakistan, he's become very popular in Pakistan. Although you would think that the Pakistani population would be very pro-American, the Pakistani population is very anti-American, including the, the lunatic jihadi faction of it. Um, there's a mixture of reasons for that. But he was very popular and there's no way the new elections which were scheduled to be held in October this year would be held and the excuse they found is that there's been a new census and Pakistan has more, 20 million more people than, than it thought it had and that there has to be redistribution of constituencies and seats so the elections at the earliest won't take place before April May of, of, of the coming year the hope is that Imran Khan would no longer be popular. They have arrested hundreds, if not thousands, of his party workers. And the senior most of them have either been bought and brought, brought in on the side of the army, or alternatively, they're put behind, behind bar. And every attempt will be made through rigged elections to make sure that his party doesn't do well but we'll see whether it does, does or not. Once you allow people the vote, you don't know which, which way they will, they will vote. We know from the Brexit experience how discomforting a decision that has been for the British government. They had gone to the, uh, the, the, the referendum in the hope of winning the referendum and putting an end to the controversy within the Conservative Party. But actually, they've stirred only a hornet's nest at several levels domestically, 
within the Conservative Party, within the European Union, and across the entire imperialist, imperialist front. So the situation now is that you have a Pakistani government which does not have the support of the Pakistani people. Since then, there have been lots of by-elections held, about 40. Almost all of them have been won by, by, by Imran Khan's party. So it's not a very good omen for holding elections. So that's basically the position now. Thanks, Rapal. And before I pass over to Caleb, uh, you just reminded me that Brexit analogy I really liked. Um, this law of unintended consequences. You know, Imran Khan, when he first became the prime minister, was not the mass popular figure that he is now. It was the coup that made him that. And it's obviously the, the kind of principled positions he's taken since that coup, rather than retiring gracefully into the background and saying, whoops, sorry, made a mistake. He stood up for positions which are hugely popular uh, within Pakistan, across all sections of so many sections of society, uh, but particularly with the poor, particularly with people who are sick of Pakistan just being a football, uh, you know, in the, in the games of other powers, while, you know, they remain uh, poor, undeveloped, all the rest of it. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to see the, the more they persecute Imran Khan, the more they shoot themselves in the foot. It's a bit like the sanctions war against Russia, you know, firming up popular opinion behind the government that it was supposed to destroy, right? It seems like they're doing exactly the same thing with Imran Khan. They're creating a genie's like been let out of the bottle of, of popular anger in Pakistan, and it's been given a focus. And that, that's what it looks like to me. It's like all this anger that was just, you know, didn't know what to do with itself for such a long time now has, to, has a focus. And the focus is, the imperialists want to get rid of Imran Khan. Well, then he's our hero. It's it's a it's a it's a really interesting dynamic, I think, to watch. Caleb. Well, everything that has just been laid out about how events are going down and how Imran Khan was forced out of office, uh, it kind of reinforces what was taught uh, by Georgi Dimitrov and what was taught by uh, Arpalm Dutt. Now, when they talk about divisions in the ruling class and Bonapartism amid a capitalist crisis, it appears there's a division within the Pakistani ruling class in relation to U.S. imperialism. And Imran Khan was on one side of it, and that has forced him to become even more popular with the masses of people. And he's now giving expression to anti-imperialist sentiments from all different classes in Pakistani society. Uh, and that's that's a great development. Um, I guess I have a couple questions um, about, you know, I know very little about Pakistan's history and, and economy and, and such. But one thing that I'm curious about is I've often listed when I when I list some of the great achievements of socialism, I've referred to the China-Pakistan Friendship Highway. Uh, which I, which is, it, it's considered the largest elevated road in the world. Uh, and it was built by the Chinese Communist Party in Mao Zedong in 1966. And I understand that that was the beginning of what we now call the China-Pakistan friendship, uh, or the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, which is a very, very important part. And if you look at a map, I mean, it's the Belt and Road, what China is doing around the world. Pakistan is a very vital part of that. So, I guess I'd be curious about, you know, the construction of the China-Pakistan Friendship Highway uh, and the relationship that China had with what I think was kind of a right-wing military government uh, in 1966 uh, and the relationship that they've continued to have up to today. Um, I'd also be curious about the legacy of Bhutto, I guess, who was the popular kind of social democratic leader who was removed by the military and executed 
I'd be curious about about his legacy as well because I just know so little about this. Well, first of all, the China-Pakistan friendship, it's a case of really an enemy of my enemy is a friend of mine. Uh, the, the, I attribute that to the stupidity of the Indian ruling class for going to war against China in 1962. There was no reason to go to, go, go to war. We can go into these details one day. Uh, China and India have a disputed border between themselves. You know, it's, it's, it's a 1,500 miles long border. And India makes claims to certain ter territories. Equally, China has claims to certain Indian territories. If you started undoing, then yes, Pakistan, Chinese might acquire a few miles here and there, but the Indians will lose the most because the Chinese have claims on the whole of the state of Arun, Arun, Arunachal Pradesh, and they have claimed to large areas of Jammu and Kashmir, which are called the, the Ladakh, Ladakh area. And the Chinese have always said, these borders were fixed at a time when neither the Chinese nor the Indian people were in charge of their own affairs. They were fixed by British colonialism and they can be sorted out peacefully through negotiations. But Nehru was egged on by the Americans at the time. You know, we're all behind behind you. Like they're saying to Ukraine now, these fools, we're all behind you. We'll fight to the last drop of the last Ukrainian. Please carry on fighting our proxy war against the, the Russian Federation. So that's what the Americans did. But the thing, and of course the, the, the Indians underestimated Chinese strength. China had gone through two, three years of very, very bad weather. Floods in some areas, drought in other areas. China's relations with the Soviet Union were not uh, on, on very good terms. And of course, with America's backing and certain internal reactionaries in India, Nehru found himself pushed to war against China and India lost very, very badly as, as, as a result of it. But all the territories that the Chinese have conquered in that war, they soon, as soon as the war was finished, they vacated those territories. First time in history that a country having won large territories actually vacates it. So it's to the credit of China that, that, they, that they did. So that's what happened. But then as Soviet and Chinese relations go from bad to worse, and at one time China was very worried that the Soviet Union and America might join together to fight against China. So, and at the same time, the American ruling class wanted to disengage the two countries from each, each other. So they wanted to have feelers. They wanted to actually have some back channel discussions with China. And Henry Kissinger wanted to visit China. And that visit was facilitated by the, at the time, the Pakistani military ruler by the name of Yahya Khan. So they almost felt there was a certain way where they could actually have friendly relations with China. And then of course, once the war in Afghanistan started, but that's much, much later, you know, the Americans needed all the help that they could possibly have but we come to come to that another time. So that was the, really the basis 
of China, India and China, Pakistan French friendship de developing. And of course, the art of diplomacy is to have friends around. And China could not afford to choose. China couldn't say it's a military dictatorship, that it's a fundamentalist government. China couldn't do that. China had to have friends in the area. It could not allow, uh, allow Pakistan to just be simply a puppet for America. I mean, it, Pakistan has the dubious reputation of having the support of America as well as having the support of China. Now you can work that out. You've got better brains than me. But that, that is the situation, the complicated situation in which you will. As regards Bhutto, yes, Bhutto was a populist. But Bhutto was also a criminal. He is not what he's portrayed to be by certain Pakistani left. I mean, you know, in 1965, there was a war between India, India and Pakistan. At that time, the ruler in Pakistan was a military ruler called General Ayub Khan. That is the first military ruler in Pakistan. He assumed power in 58 and he carried on. And of course, Pakistanis are also, to a certain extent, victims of their own propaganda. Pakistan exists by being viscerally anti-India. That's a part of this. This is another topic we come to in a minute. But, and then part of the mythology is they are against, not India, but against Hindu India. And again, another mythology, mythological point they make is one Pakistani soldier is equal to five Hindu soldiers. Well, that doesn't happen. Pakistan has waged three wars, or Pakistan Midland involved in three wars against India. No war has actually happened that won victory for Pakistan. In fact, the worst one was in 1971, which led to the breakup of Pakistan and the breakup and the separation of East Pakistan into, in, into Bangladesh. That was in 19. 1971. And Bhutto, of course, after 1965, he was very keen to become prime minister. And he went along with everything that the Pakistani military was doing. He was sent to the United Nations to make make it make make a speech. Uh, and to the General Assembly, he announced, Pakistan will fight for a thousand years, and we will never allow Kashmir to be ruled by India. Kashmir has become an obsession in, in, in Pakistan. Uh, and the, as long as the Kashmir issue is not solved, Pakistani ruling class finds it very difficult to have normal relations with, 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 with India. But the way the situation stands, there's no way Pakistan can win this uh, uh, state by military means, particularly now because both sides have nuclear weapons. You know. You're not going to lose the whole of your country in order to get Kashmir. Beautiful though it is, I've visited it, I know it's a lovely, lovely, lovely place. So Bhutto was obsessed with it. And then of course, uh, uh, what happened is after, after the, 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 the war between East and West, West Pakistan, which is what will bring Bhutto to power. Pakistan lost very badly. And what's more, uh, East 
Pakistanis were able to declare themselves as a separate country, Bangladesh. They did have India's help. So it's not true that they didn't get India's help. But no way could India's help alone have actually helped them to achieve separation from West, West Pakistan because there was internal problems in Pakistan. I hope you will ask me a question of why, what was the cause of the trouble later so that I don't spoil this narrative by, by mixing everything up. So Bhutto uh, took advantage of the, basically the humiliation of the Pakistan army in, in East Pakistan. And the Yaya Khan government basically made way for Bhutto. And Bhutto, when he came, he pursued exactly the same sort of policies, except that Bhutto had to go to India and hold talks with Mrs. Indra Gandhi in a place called Simla. And they reached a Simla accord, whereby Pakistan was literally going as a defeated power, it was going not from a position of, 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 of strength. And as a result of that, uh, Pakistani prisoners of war that had been taken by India, there were over 90,000. They were released, a number of other agreements were, were made. And one of them was, of course, that they will solve the Kashmir problem by peaceful means through negotiations. You know, that, that was, I mean, Mrs. Gandhi could have made him to sign much more, but Bhutto said, I'll be hanged if I sign to something worse than that. So that, that was agreed to. And, and after five years of being, being there, Bhutto, Bhutto wasn't doing very much for the pa pa Pakistani people. He made lots of noises about, you know, his slogan was Roti Kapura Makan, which translated means food, clothing, and shelter. And I'll give that as a slogan that was resonated among the Pakistani people. What do people, poor people want most? Food, housing, and clothing to, to, to wear. But of course, he wasn't actually able to apply, supply any of that to ordinary people and pursued the same policy towards neighboring India. Now, Pakistan cannot make progress if it continues to have fight, fight with India because it has to maintain a huge army. Pakistani army is over 600,000 personnel strong. Pakistan spends more on its defense budget than it does either on public health or on, on education. And nearly 40% of the Pakistani population lives below the line of poverty, which is just under $4 a day, day, day in, in, in Pakistan. Recently, uh, there was an announcement by the government that on a certain day they were going to distribute free sacks of flour uh, and, 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 and rice, rice and wheat. There was such a stampede, many people were killed in trying, trying to, get, trying to, to get, get, get that sack of flour. There's no reason for Pakistan to be short of food. Pakistan has got one of the most fertile, fertile pieces of, of territory. Pakistan is an inheritor to the canal system 
which was built by the East India Company. Punjab was the last state to be conquered by the East India Company. It wasn't conquered till 1845 or something like that. But, and the, the British disbanded the Punjab army, but they were, the Indians, Punjabis were lucky that soon, 10 years later, well, first of all, few, few years uh, later, in 1857, the first Indian War of Independence started. But in, in English history is known as the Sepoy Mutiny. It was a war of independence as Marx and Engels declared, the first war of Indi Indian independence. That lasted about a year and a half. And there was a very, very fierce uh, war between the two sides. At that time, the princely states of Punjab committed treachery against the people of Punjab and joined the British and sent soldiers to help them beat the 1857-7 revolt. As soon as that had been beaten, another piece of good luck for Punjab was the American Civil War started. And in the Civil War, because of the blockade by the Confederates, the cotton from the slave states of Southern America would not reach England. The biggest and the most important industry in Britain at that time was the textile industry. Workers were without any jobs. Hundreds of thousands of workers are unemployed. And of course, the British ruling class secretly desired the victory of the slaveocracy, of the slave-owning ruling classes in the, in, in, in the southern states. It didn't quite work out as the British wanted. The British even uh, supplied weaponry to the southern states. And yes. one of the things they did was they actually fitted a southern warship called the Alabama. And the Alabama then went on to do a lot of damage to the Union Navy. And after the war, the American government brought a case before arbitration against Britain and a award of several million, which at that time was a huge sum of money, was awarded against Britain. And a lot of people thought Britain wouldn't pay but of course, Britain, Britain's ruling class is very cunning. It had eyes to the future. It wanted trade with America. It wanted to make money out of America. So, so, the, so they paid that. So the southern states didn't win. But during that time, when Britain realized it was suffering from a cotton famine, it developed India and Egypt and parts of Kenya as alternatives for growing cotton. And of course, cotton in the East, as Marx and Engels pointed out, it's not possible to have agriculture without irrigation. And so they had to build canals. And the canal system in Punjab, uh, after the partition, most of it actually went to Pakistan. So Pakistan has very fertile land and a good canal system. And I do not know how it's well maintained it is, but it's a good, good, good system. So there's no reason for Pakistan to be short of food. It, it should have plenty of food. If India can solve its food problem, which at, at a certain miserable level it has, you know, India not only has sufficient food, it also even is able to export quite a lot of rice, rice, especially, but all, all, all also wheat. So Pakistan really sh should not be uh, la lacking in food, but it is lacking in food. 
and there's mismanagement, there is corruption, there's just agriculture is not modernized the way it, 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 it should be. And they, they, could, they could learn that from a lot of countries in the world, how they solve their problems, how they conduct their agriculture. But I'm afraid Bhutto's record is not, is not that wonderful because Bhutto knew he could not continue to be in office without actually the support of the military. So he tried to control the military. He appointed somebody who was a non-entity as the chief of army staff, thinking that he was obsequious, he was subservient, he was very much into praying five times a day. And that's Gen General Ziaul Haq. But as soon as Ziaul Haq came, he of course arrests Bhutto and on some trumped up charges, he's able to have him executed. And then good luck for Zia was that the Afghan war starts in a, in a big way. And Mujahideen, who basically a creation of the United States had to be supported. And all the uh, weaponry and other materials were distributed via Pakistan. And General Ziaul Haq was very uh, conveniently situ situated situated for that. So he had good nine, 10 years of, of run. He started the international stage as being on the side of libera liberation fighters, i.e. the fundamentalist jihad jihadis in Afghanistan. And so that's really Bhutto's story. Thanks, Rapal. I just before I come back to I'm going to come back to you, Rapal, about um, the economic situation in Pakistan right now. But I just wanted to add a couple of things to what you were saying. One was listening to you. It reminds us of where Pakistan is situated on the map, what it's next to, why it's been so crucial an ally and a pawn of the USA, um, and, and why they've always been nervous about uh, Pakistan's relationship with with China. Um, it's interesting, um, one small story to highlight the antipathy towards the links with China and also the determination not to let Pakistan have, have independent development has been their approach to uh, the building of Chinese or, or, or Chinese engineered infrastructure in Pakistan. So that, that um, corridor you were talking about, Caleb, and the, and the, and the recent building that's been going on there has been attacked many times and more than that uh, not just you know and engineers who are working there have been have been murdered uh clearly at the behest of u.s imperialism but more than that the usa its secret services have created a liberation movement in a corner of pakistan uh that nobody ever heard of before and you it has a website wow. now it's all, it's all officially recognized by you know some those usa type of i forget them that all the three-letter agencies in america basically but they have a nice english language website and it's the it's balochistan is the balochistan is the name of the of the province and there's now a balochistan independence liberation movement and it's got an army and wow. you know uh, it, I mean, it's pretty small, I think, still. They haven't managed to make such a go of it as they would have liked. But clearly they're trying to use them in the same way, same way they've tried to use impoverished uh, Muslims in Xinjiang against China. You know, this is a minority within Pakistan who clearly have grievances. And of course, their poverty, their lack of development, uh, the lack of general development in Pakistan. And of course, they're a, a most underdeveloped part of Pakistan. Uh, they have grievances that the U.S., 
agencies can manipulate. And they've created this freedom struggle, a separatist struggle of Balochistan wow. precisely to disrupt the building of this uh, Pakistan-China uh, uh, link of the Belt and Road project. And I think that's that's also something to, to sort of bear in mind when you're when you're looking at how the USA acts in other countries for its interests, not for the interests of the people who are there. Um, Opal, I wanted to ask you about the economic situation in Pakistan, because, you know, of course, there's an economic crisis that's, you know, racking the globe right now. And so many countries, you know, everyone's aware of what's happening in their country um, and often not aware of what's happening elsewhere. Uh, but I know that Pakistan is one of the countries that's been ravaged economically particularly badly recently. It seems to me essentially that it's bankrupt. I know it's been granted we were speaking earlier, and I know it's been granted an IMF loan, but on very harsh conditions. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's at the root of the crisis and, and what the IMF loan means uh, in terms of whether it's going to ameliorate or worsen the crisis for Pakistanis? Uh, before I come to that, I just want to make one point about, about Balochistan. The trouble is, the average bourgeois all over the world does not understand either the nature or the significance of the national national question, right? Pakistanis have deluded themselves ever since the state was formed by saying, we are Muslims, we're one, we're one nation. Well, on that basis, separate Muslim states all over the world just will not exist. A nation is not formed by, by religion. Religion plays very little part in the formation of, of, of a nation. I personally feel everyone of these governments should be sent free of charge a copy of Stalin's Marxism and the National Question. They are not likely to learn much, but at least should, they should be given the opportunity to enlighten themselves. National Question is a very significant question. It cannot, cannot be ignored. And failure to understand that is what led to the breakup of Pakistan, and that could actually result in the further breakup of Balochistan from Pakistan. Yes, American imperialism is poking its fingers into every other person's pie, if, if you like. It's always putting its snout in other people's gardens and trying to, to de de devastate them. But it could not do it alone without help from the locals. Balochistan has been treated badly. Balochistan constitutes about half the territory of modern Pakistan, but it's only 5% of the Pakistani population. Balochistan has a very valuable natural resource, namely gas. It's piped into the rest of Pakistan, and Balochistanis feel they do not get much share of that. So Balochistan is very backward. So Pakistani could easily afford to give tremendous economic help to Balochistan to make life bearable and therefore not leave any grievances to be exploited by, by, by US imperialism. So, and of course, Balochistan, the whole of Pakistan, but especially Balochistan is very, very useful. It's not that, that far from the Middle East and it's very important uh, to control Balochistan he who controls Rajasthan is able to control all those um, waterways that go, that, that go past it. So I hope that the Pakistanis are able to 
actually solve their problem internally without calling America's sage advice as to how to solve, solve, solve this problem. So that, that, that's the question of Balochistan. Now coming to the economic problems. Pakistan's economy is not very in very good shape. Pakistani currency is in free fall. There are about 300 rupees to, to, to a dollar uh, presently. And about 38% of the population of Pakistan lives below the poverty, poverty line. Although literacy in the last 20 years has improved considerably, still at the moment, the, 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 the rate of literacy is about 58%. It's disgusting that there should be a single illiterate person, either in India or Pakistan, 75 years after liberation. You look at socialist countries, the old Soviet Union and China, or Vietnam, within 10 years of these government, governments, communist governments take over, the questions of literacy and public health were solved very, very swift, swift, swiftly indeed. And it just shows the priorities these governments have. Because in Pakistan's case, after Pakistan has pay, spent money on its defense budget, on its armed forces, and after it has paid interest on its foreign debt. Not much is left for development and for expenditure on health, edu education, social services, services, etc. So the development in Pakistan uh, before the separation of East Pakistan took place on the basis that the jute, which was a big foreign currency, and nobody uses jute these days, and now, Papa, you know, what do you call it? plastics have taken over from, from jute. All the jute was grown in East Pakistan, but the foreign currency that was learned went into the treasury and was used for the development of, of, of West Pakistan. That was one of the big uh, grudges that East Pakistanis, uh, or Beng Bengalis, if you like, like like her because half the Bengalis are in India and half are in, in Bangladesh now and they were in East Pakistan first and then the second grudge was again the national question Pakistani ruling class could never understand the feelings of people towards their mother tongue soon after the formation of Pakistan Jinnah went to Dhaka University and gave a lecture and he said from now on Urdu is going to be your nas national language that is what you will, will speak. Well, that was like a red road to the bulls. Bengalis, more than any other people on the Indian sub subcontinent, love their language. And they love their poets, their writers, and it doesn't matter whether they're Hindus, Muslims, whether it's Nazar al-Islam or Tagore, they revere them, they, they love them. You cannot tell the Bengalis that Bengali is not their mother tongue, but from now on it's, it's, it's going to be. To be, to be Urdu. So they had, 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 had grudges on that. And thirdly, in the United Pakistan of that those days, Bengalis were the majority of the population. And when they actually, the last election, and that's Bhutto comes in as well, the Pakistan National Assembly had members elected, majority of whom came from East Pakistan. 
and the West Pakistanis yeah. wouldn't allow, allow them to form the government. Well, can you just imagine in your country that somebody wins the presidential election and is not allowed to enter, enter the White House? I, I won't intrude into private grief because that's also the subject of dispute in America, America now. And so when these things came to a boiling point, the Bengali strength were not allowed to form the government. Bhutto was part of it. Bhutto didn't want anybody else to be the prime minister. So it's partly their intransigence which led to the Bengalis eventually giving up on, on peaceful negotiations and they started uh, to recruit people for fighting uh, uh, with, with arms in hand and it developed further. Pakistani army went and tried to repress it. They were unable to do it and of course by that time the movement had become big and it secured the support of India and with India's help they were able to of course defeat the Pakistani army. India has never been able to have a decisive victory against Pakistan before. All these fights have been drawn but it was able to achieve a decisive victory because Pakistan was internally so so, so divided and that is what, what happened. And of course once they lost the, 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 the jute bit, foreign currency became very uh, uh, difficult. Pakistan had to generate its own foreign currency and of course it exports certain things, export textiles and it has to import oil. Oil is very expensive. India does the same. India has to import a lot of oil and so Pakistani economy hasn't made tremendous progress. If I can give you some of the figures, Pakistani GDP is now nearly 350 billion dollars a year. It really is less than what Switzerland's economy is. And what is Switzerland? A tiny little mountainous place, hardly any anything in it because it has certain industries. Most of all, it has finance, insurance, money laundering. They are the money launderers for the world's uh, corrupt uh, elite from every, 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 every country. The lit literacy has, has improved somewhat to 58%. And of course, uh, Pakistani GDP is just about $1,500 per capita, um, which exactly is not, is not, not a huge sum. But per capita doesn't tell you anything. Huge amount of it would be going to the very rich in Pakistan and very little is left for the ordinary, ordinary Pakistanis. And uh, on public health, they spend a miserable 0.45% of the GDP on public health, nearly 4% on, on the army, but 0.45% on, on health. Now, how can you run any meaningful health system on the basis of such miserable sums, sums of money. Pakistan's external debt at the moment is $126 billion, billion, of which a third is owed to China. Although listening to Western media, you'd think all of it was owed to China. No, majority of it is owed to imperialist multilateral institutions and government, governments, etc. And between February of this year and June of 1926, Pakistan is down to pay back $82 billion. Where it gets $82 billion, I do not know. The situation was so bad, they were about to default. 
when they were able eventually to cobble up a deal with uh, the International Monetary Fund. And Pakistani Assembly could not pass the budget because the IMF would not agree to that budget unless the conditions laid down by IMF were met, namely subsidies on fuel, food, uh, and cooking oil were actually taken away. Now, these are very important items for the ordinary, ordinary person in any country, but especially in, in Pakistan. So the budget could not be passed till the IMF had agreed, agreed on the terms. So it's not Pakistani National Assembly that's in charge of Pakistani budget. It's the IMF and indirectly it's the imperialist countries, especially America, which is the largest shareholder in the present arrangement in, in, in the IMF. So I'm afraid the situation, if you look at the human development index, Pakistan is number 160 out of um, 185 countries. So it's pretty much at a very low level. It's, it's at the same level as, Af as Af Afghanistan, which has been ravaged by 20 years of imperialist war against it. 40 years really, isn't it? Thank you, Rapal. That was a really, really enlightening uh, uh, and and all-encompassing picture of, of what's been going on in Pakistan's economy since uh, independence. Caleb? Well, I've got a few things to just react to what, what Harpal said and informed us all about. Um, you know, I, I have spoken to some leftists from Pakistan, uh, many who've moved to the United States. Uh, and one one recurring theme I have heard is that that there were a lot of high expectations when Bhutto took office uh, and when he failed to fulfill them, uh, when people didn't see an increase in their living standards, that led to widespread demoralization among you know leftist socialist communist anti-imperialist forces uh in pakistan that was kind of a negative turning point when he took office he was in office for some time and didn't deliver um and that that, that that's kind of remembered as, as kind of a negative turning point in the history of the country and you know when you talked about the slogan that he used about you know food clothing and shelter um it's it's a very interesting thing because you know when i go over the history of socialist countries i will point to the big achievements in terms of wiping out illiteracy, electrifying countries, industrializing them, you know, providing running water and electricity and universal housing. And and, and you'll get this response from Trotskyites and others. And they'll say there's a quote, uh, I think it was, it was a Trotskyite activist in the United States. And I've had this quote thrown at me many times. CLR James, he says, well, human beings are not hogs and sheep as if this is it is such a, a, a snide middle class dismissing of really dramatic improvements in people's living standards that we've seen in China, in the Soviet Union, in, in Cuba, and in, in other countries that have, have moved towards socialism and had socialist revolutions. And because these middle-class intellectuals don't, they just can't relate to how important these things are. And they just dismiss it like, oh, we're, they're worried about, you know, you know, some vision of pure egalitarian socialist democracy, the idea of food and clothing and shelter, it just doesn't matter to people, right? And, 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 and uh, Michael Parenti has, has also, you know, pointed this out about Trotskyites, is they have this, 
this kind of lack of interest in improving people's material conditions. You know, they glorify the early years of the Bolshevik Revolution because they consider it to have been more pure in the 1920s. Uh, but then, you know, they consider the period when Stalin was raising people up out of poverty and industrializing the country, they consider that to be horrendous because it's like they're more concerned with the books that were published during the 1920s, having a more correct or Trotskyite political line uh, than they are with the actual material improvement in people's lives. And so, and that's something that comes across. And when you, when you visit countries around the world that have broken out of Western capitalism and imperialism, they are able to actually improve people's material conditions. And that is, that is the victory. And that among the middle-class left, uh, there's no interest in that. And that incident that you mentioned with the flower, how they were giving away uh, flour for free and, and how that created an incident. That reminds me of, of something that happened in the United States uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, that's an incident that was very telling. You know, the USA had a much stronger economy back in the early 1970s. There was, you know, it was the post-World War II economic expansion. It still happened. There was still a strong, you know, industrial middle class or industrial working class that was well paid. Um, and uh, there was an incident that happened where there was one of these uh, ultra leftist uh, groups that were calling themselves Maoists, the Symbionese Liberation Army. And they kidnapped Patty Hearst, who was the daughter of William Randolph Hearst, uh, the billionaire. Right. They kidnapped her uh, and um, they, you know, they were demanding, uh, demanding all kinds of different things for ransom. One of the things they demanded was that uh, two million dollars of free food be distributed to low income people in Oakland, California. Um, that was one of their demands. You know, they had this this billionaire heiress. They kidnapped her. They wanted her to just, you know, they wanted this free food to be distributed. And the mainstream media in the United States whipped up a hysteria, basically saying that if you went and got any of this free food, you were a very bad person. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan was quoted as saying that, you know, that he hoped there would be an outbreak of botulism. Uh, the people who got this food would all die. And uh, it was it was it was like there was just this huge campaign. Do not go and get any of this free food. Um, and and yet when it came time that this two million dollars worth of free food was distributed, there were lines of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who lined up to get that free food showing that even at the height of the United States, even when its economy was quite strong, there were still a lot of hungry people that didn't care. If mainstream media was telling them they were bad people for getting free food, they didn't care. Um, and that, you know, thousands and thousands of people lined up to get food, uh, you know, that had the manifesto of this ultra leftist uh, group stapled to it, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, and the police in Oakland, California, were so angry to see all these thousands of people getting free food. They started picking up frozen turkeys and throwing them at people. And there was like a riot that broke out. It's a really wild story you look at. And it and it shows how, you know, things like this, again, uh, people want to dismiss them. Uh, but they are very, very important. And that imperialism, they tell us they're developing the world. But, you know, Pakistan is a country that's been that's been part of the global capitalist system for years. And as you pointed out, there are big sections of the country that remain chronically underdeveloped, uh, that don't have running water, that don't have electricity, that people are people are living in extreme conditions of poverty. And the imperialists, uh, that is not part of their agenda. That's not one of their concerns. Uh, they're concerned with maximizing their profits. Uh, and then they see China come into Pakistan and and start to negotiate and build, you know, uh, and construct in the China-Pakistan economic corridor. 
and they flip out and it's almost like they have the same playbook uh, in every country. They, su they suddenly foment a separatist movement here. Uh, they, 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 I understand they, they've been fomenting, you know, Islamist attacks on, on China in the name of, you know, China being, you know, not, uh, not in line with Islam or something. So they've, they've, you know, they've, they've fomented some of these Islamist groups to carry out terrorist attacks against Chinese businesses, et cetera. And the imperialists have the exact same playbook everywhere they go, which is they see development. They see, you know, socialism and anti-imperialism. They see uh, a rise in economic development. And so they foment unrest and discord to try and put a stop to it. And now we have a president, a popular president, Imran Khan, not a socialist, not a communist, uh, but he came to office and he wasn't a stooge of the imperialists. And so they've railroaded him out of office. They even put him in jail temporarily. I understand he's been released, but... Uh, no, but no, no, arrested again. Arrested again. I mean, there you go. It's every week. <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, just coming back, Kapoor, to you, I mean, Caleb sort of touched briefly on it there, but really this imperialist desire to dominate this strategy of divide and conquer, right? Keep people divided so you can stay on top. Um, that's really at the basis of the whole story of Pakistan, isn't it? Well, you see, first of all, the basis of Pakistan is nothing other than religion. Religion cannot be the basis of division of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a country. Otherwise, every country would have a Catholic state and a Protestant state. Every country would have something uh, equally ridiculous. The Pakistan rests on three things. One is being Islamist. And that requires them to have very close connection with the mosque. Secondly, Pakistan has to be anti-India. And it is. I, there are a lot of my leftist friends, especially Maoists, who would say, I'm making up stories. Uh, you know, Pakistan's raison d'etre is being anti-India. The moment they become friendly with India, they will not exist anymore than if the Zionists become very friendly and friendly with the Palestinians. The very basis for the existence of a theocratic uh, Zionist state just simply will not exist. So, because they have to be anti-India, they have to depend a lot on the army. So, the army is very strong. Now, the army needs to be supported. It needs weapons. It needs money. And where does it get from? From imperialism. So, this is the tripod on which Pakistan Pakistan stands. And it's really, the whole thing contradicts itself. The mullahs are not exactly the agents of enlightenment. They are not the followers of, of the 18th century writers of the coming French Revolution at, at, at that time. They lived in times 800 years ago. And because the Pakistani army rules, Pakistani army usually overthrows the government by saying either the government is corrupt, which actually is a bit rich because Pakistani army itself is very, very, very corrupt. It runs a lot of businesses. There's not a Pakistani city of any size, uh, the environments of which have not been simply parceled out, you know, so many thousand yards, so much, depending on your rank, whether you're a general or a colonel, to army personnel above the rank of ca captain. 
So all these, this land has been given free to them because land in uh, urban centers in India is literally as expensive as in the urban centers in, in, in the centers of, 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 of imperialism. So Pakistani army depend, is dependent upon America on the one hand and the fundamentalists on the other. Pakistani people don't vote for the army. The army does not have popular support. You may get the impression it has Pakistani army does not have popular support. The army, the, the parties that it has, it supports are religious parties like the Jamaat Islami. And their, their power basically is to harangue in the mosque and be able to not deliver at the ballot box, but actually bring tens of thousands of people into the streets to intimidate civilian governments. So the Pakistani army can say, this is what the people want, and we are taking over in, in their name. They, are, they, they have good relations with each other. So the tragedy of Pakistan is that it is formed on the basis of religion. It has to rely on the mosque as a result of it because it doesn't have popular support. Pakistani prime ministers who are religious and fundamentalists themselves, including Bhutto, they can drink a bottle of Scotch whiskey, the best type, single malt, you know, just as some of us do, do in, 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 in Britain, but they're still fundamentalists in their, in, in their ideology. There's a good story and it's a real one. When Majib Rahman, who was the leader of the East Pakistanis, before the separation of East Pakistan, he was taken by the, by the army. An army in Pakistan is basically a West Pakistani army. It's an army mainly made, based upon Punjabis and to a certain extent from the Northwest frontier. It's not Sindhi army, it's not Balochi army, it's basically a Punjabi army. He was brought to there. And of course, Yaya is from the old Indian army tradition. He has gone through the Indian military masses. And of course, you could not become an officer in the army without drinking drinking good, good whiskey. So he's got a glass of whiskey in his hand. And he says to Majibur Rahman, you must understand Majibur. You have to, you have to safeguard the honor of Islam. <laughs> he's got whiskey in his hand and saying, you've got to safeguard the honor of Islam. Now, in my view, whiskey does not dishonor Islam. But a lot of Muslims think that, and therefore it's not a good thing to go around with a glass of whiskey in your hand and say, you know, you've got to safeguard the honor of Islam. So that is a, is a, is a, is a, is a tragedy. You know, once you're founded on a wrong basis, you can never stabilize your regime. The Zionists in Israel are in a much stronger position. They got a fairly vibrant economy. They got a lot of American uh, American help. They get a lot of contributions from uh, the Jewish populations around the world, but mainly United States of America, and within that, within in, in New York. They're in a good position, but because of their very position, the basis on which they're formed, they've got to be anti-Palestinian. They cannot exist without that. So they go around everywhere, terrorizing the Palestinians. Does it give them rest? No, I will not be there to see it. 
and we'll discuss it ne next time. This state will not last. It's onto a self system of self-destruction. The more powerful the Zionists get militarily, the stronger their army, the more sophisticated their weapons, including nuclear weapons, the less powerful they feel. They are frightened. You remember that little video that went viral where a young Palestinian girl, very good looking, very spirit, 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 spirited, uh, uh, when an Israeli soldier tried to harass her, she slapped him in the face. And because she became famous, world famous, she wasn't treated that badly. She served a little bit time in jail and she's interviewed. She said, I'm not frightened of anybody. I, I, I'm not a victim. I don't feel myself a victim. It is you lot who are victims. They're 15 year old boys are trained to go with a gun. Otherwise they're not safe without, without the gun. I'm a freedom fighter. I'm not a victim. victim. No, that, that is the spirit these people have. You can never beat them. You can have all the weaponry you like, but in the end, at night, you've got to come and sleep in your home and you've got to walk on Mother Earth. And there's no basis for that. And that's what happened to Pakistan. The, 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 the separation from India was supposed to solve the religious question. Well, Pakistan now says it's got 250, 40 million. I don't know whether it has. Let's say it has 220. Well, India has 220 million as well. Not everybody went to Pakistan. In fact, the areas, the Urdu speaking areas from central India, from Lucknow, Allahabad, they were the most vociferous and were the most instrumental in the formation of Pakistan. But when Pakistan was formed, did they go to Pakistan? No, they didn't. They stayed in India. Quite rightly, India is their country. That's where they should. Nobody, nobody should have moved. They should have stayed wherever, wherever they were. And as a result of movement, there were religious riots. Anywhere between one to two million people were butchered, done, 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 done to death. And so this hasn't really done, not only done good to India, it hasn't done good, good, to, good, good to Pakistan. A state formed on that basis. I mean, in Pakistan, how can you have actually any scientific discussion if you cannot dispute anything that comes from the Holy Quran? It would be like saying, well, you can't say the earth moves around the sun because the Bible says the other way around, that the sun moves around the earth. And you know that in Europe, there was persecution of people who said that. And you only know one case, that's Galileo. How many Galileos kept their mouths shut because they didn't want to be uh, harassed and tortured by, by, by the Catholic Church? You cannot have a discussion. So you, you have people in schools teaching you uh, basic science. And they say you take two molecules of hydrogen, one of oxygen, and God willing, it'll turn into water, right? God's got nothing to do with it. But of course, it actually is something that acts as a, as, a, as a hindrance to the development of science. The fact that some science is able to develop, the fact that Pakistan is able to manufacture nuclear weapons, I think it's to me an, a, a great eloquent, eloquent tribute to truth and science that it will overcome all the obstacles and actually work its way, even if they have got to go to 
the mosque every day and pray, and then they come back and do their 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 their, their, their scientific work. So Pakistan has got to change its mindset to actually progress beyond. It's got to break its connection. The ruling class has to break its connection with military dominance. It's got to break its connection with the mosque, and above all, it's got to break its connection with the with U.S. imperialism. Without that, it will flounder and be moving from pillar to post without falling, finding any solution. You can change any number of governments, but they won't make for any, any, any progress. Fantastic. Thank you, Hopal. Now, I really wanted to talk about um, BRICS and how that changes things between Pakistan, India, China, and everything else in the region. But I feel like we've been probably going too long. So we're going to have to do a dedicated episode on BRICS because it has many ramifications, many parts of the world, not only in this one. So um, before we go, um, I'll just hand over to Caleb for a closing word. I'm good. Uh, very educational. And I look forward to our, uh, our next uh, conversation. It may be it may be educational for you too, but I'll be slaughtered by both Indians and Pakistanis because everything I have said, they, they, they'll violently disagree. Some will call me as pro-India, some will call me as anti-Pakistan, but I've learned to live with this kind of slur. Well, let me tell you, just as a final, final remark then, following that, uh, from my perspective, which of course has been highly coloured by listening to my father all my life, uh, the worst thing that ever happened to the subcontinent was partition. Not only was it a horrific, uh, brutal tragedy uh, crime at the time it happened, but neither India nor Pakistan have ever recovered. They've never had the place in the world they could have or should have done. And the abolition of the partition of the subcontinent is something that I look forward to and hope I live to see. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need worker support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.